Thanks to this season's presenting sponsor, Kohler. They design innovative sinks and faucets for people who do their best work in the kitchen. There are thousands of bees in a hive, and when they're active, you can hear them. And when you don't hear them, you know something is wrong. Private investigator Rocky Pipkin has come across a lot of crimes in his patch of California's Central Valley. He's investigated gangs, tracked down stolen vehicles. He even discovered a dead body. But he never thought that he would end up investigating honeybee thefts. We've heard of 500, 600 hives being stolen at once. Each year, beekeepers from all across the United States drive to California to rent out their honeybee hives. The hives are placed in almond groves so that the bees can pollinate the trees. More than half of all the honeybees in the United States make this journey each year. With 1.1 million trees, there was plenty of business for the beekeepers. In February of 2020, a beekeeper in Tulare County suspected that some of his hives were going missing. So he hired Rocky Pipkin P.I. Rocky and his agents went to the Grove for a stakeout, looking for anybody in the fields who shouldn't be there. We're out there at 2 o'clock in the morning, and here comes a truck, and it loads up the hives, and the guys are in their suits, and they look like, you know, they're out there for official business. It's not unusual for beekeepers to move their hives at night when the bees are sleepy. Maybe this is all above board. But Rocky has a hunch. He runs the license plate and gets a hit. He calls the beekeeper. And he was basically in shock. And he said, well, I know that guy. He used to work for me, worked for me for several years. And he said, I heard that, that he had gone into business for himself. He had gone into business for himself, but that business was stealing from his old boss. Turns out, if you're going to steal beehives, you need to look like a beekeeper and act like a beekeeper. Which more often than not means that you are a beekeeper. They're typically either an ex-employee or a current employee of the owner of the hives. Bees may work together as a colony, but in California's Central Valley, the beekeepers are turning on each other. From America's Test Kitchen, I'm Bridget Lancaster, and this is Proof. Hi, Proof listeners. Now, we all know that fried calamari is delicious, but what else can you do with calamari? Today, I'm calling one of my America's Test Kitchen colleagues to find out. Hello? Hey, Bridget. Hey, Steve. All right, so I've got a question for you. Yeah. What is your favorite way to prepare calamari? I love calamari. In the summer, I like to buy whole tubes of it and stuff and grill them. They're amazing that way. <sighs> But I got to say, I think my favorite way to eat calamari is in the Italian pasta dish, linguine allo scoglio, where the rings are tossed in the pot near the end of cooking so that they just cook through. They are literally the crowning ingredient of that dish. Calamari can be so much more than deep fried rings. For our recipe for linguine allo scoglio, 
and more recipes from the Town Doc, visit towndoc.com ATK. If you were to ask most people, hey, what does a beekeeper actually do? The answer would mostly be, I mean, I guess they make honey. Except no, because these days, a beekeeper's real income mainly comes from renting out their hives to pollinate these huge industrial farms. This is Australian journalist Mark Fennell. Mark came across this story when he was making a series for Audible called Nut Jobs. So I met Rocky Pipkin, private investigator, when I was making nut jobs. Hi there, can I help you? Hi there, my name's Mark Fennell. Uh, I'm a reporter. I've got a meeting with Rocky Pipkin. And I was investigating how nearly $10 million worth of almonds were stolen from California's Central Valley. Okay, I don't know what's better here. A private investigator named Rocky Pipkin or a $10 million almond heist. I know, right? So Rocky Pipkin's detective agency is in a fairly unremarkable office block in downtown Visalia, and he is a human anecdote machine. Like, he will tell you stories about hunting down lost relatives through to helping out the Secret Service. And it turns out detective work runs in the family. On his office wall is a faded black-and-white picture of a stately man with this dimpled smile. This was Charles Wilton Pipkin, who founded the Pipkin National Detective Agency. So it runs in the family then? I, I guess you could say that. <laughs> when Charles Wilton Pipkin started the detective agency in 1917, he probably didn't expect that 100 years later, his great-great-nephew Rocky would make a name for himself specializing in agricultural crimes. No, probably not. <laughs> and Rocky has come to focus on agricultural crimes because for more than a century, California has become the world's cornucopia. From America to Australia, Europe to Asia, you have almost definitely eaten something grown in this valley. Apart from the nuts, there's also oranges, strawberries, cherries, figs. There's also pomegranates in there. It's amazing. We feed the world. And so... When any industry becomes lucrative, it, in turn, becomes attractive to criminals, like $10 million almond heists. Right. But to be honest with you, Bridget, there is so much thievery that happens in the farms of this valley. Talking to investigators, you get the sense that if it ain't padlocked, it's going to get stolen. <laughs> Machinery, electronics, pumps, copper piping, of course, the crops themselves— and yes, just like Rocky said, even beehives. The crooks realized that it would be very profitable to steal the hives. They can make a bunch of money real quick. But how do you turn a profit from a truckload of stolen bees? And then they contact farmers and say, hey, listen, we've got two or 300 hives. And for a fee, we will place them in your orchards. And so they're in essence stealing the hives, which cost them nothing, and then they're renting them to the farmers and then sell the honey at the end of the, the season. So they make a buck two times over. Once by renting out the stolen bees for pollination services, and then by selling the byproduct of those bees, honey. After Rocky mentioned those thefts to me, I really wanted to know more about this bizarre pocket of bee crime. Like, why are bees so valuable? And who's stealing them? And of course, what is actually being done to stop it? 
And what I would come to learn is that this is so much bigger than a small con where an ex-employee steals from his boss. It's a very specific problem with very big causes, and it has everything to do with supply and demand. Each year in the United States, $15 billion worth of crops, everything from almonds to apples, avocados to cranberries, they all rely on one group of teeny tiny pollinators. These types of fruit trees need insects to cross-pollinate, to carry pollen from one tree to fertilise a different tree. It's kind of nature's way of making sure a tree doesn't marry its cousin. So in an almond grove, a bee will fly over to drink nectar from an almond blossom. And while it's eating, the pollen from the anther, which is the male part of the flower, will get all over the bee's body. And then the bee goes to another blossom on a different tree to drink up, and it deposits the pollen onto the new flower's stigma. That's the female part of the flower. And voila, the bee has facilitated the almond tree's mating. And then the bee goes back to its hive, stores the extra food in the form of honey inside the hive. It is a near-perfect symbiotic relationship. Or at least it was, until we humans mess with the process just a bit too much. A few decades ago, farmers would have just left pollination to the wild bees and other insects flying around. But in the past 40 years, two major changes have happened. Much more farming and far fewer bugs. One of the few aspects of insect decline that people can perceive kind of directly themselves is often called the windshield phenomenon. This is Professor Dave Goulson. He's an insect expert. He's got a book out soon called Silent Earth about insect declines and what we can do about them. So exactly what is the windshield phenomenon? Back 30, 40 years ago, if you went for a drive in the summer, you had to stop every hour or two because the windscreen became completely covered in splatted insects and you'd have to scrub them off because you couldn't see where you were going. I'm in my 50s, so I can distinctly remember family holidays in the summer where we had to, my dad would get me to clean the windscreen. And, and today you can drive for hours in midsummer and, and it just doesn't happen. Your windscreen stays clean. Turns out there are a lot of reasons why insects are dying out. Number one. Habitat loss is the biggest one. I think most people would agree. We used to have lots of flower-rich habitats, flower-rich grasslands, hay meadows, almost all disappeared and was replaced by much more intensively farmed land, which has very few flowers. And number two? There's been the widespread introduction of lots of different pesticides, which really started after the Second World War. And there's a lot of evidence that they impact on wild insects. And pesticides have an especially unusual effect on honeybees. They can impair their ability to navigate and to remember which flowers are most rewarding. Some bee scientists compare this to Alzheimer's disease. The bees can no longer remember where they live. Which brings us to number three. We've accidentally spread bee diseases around the world. Non-native bacteria, fungi, viruses. There's also a particularly nasty parasite called the varroa mite. So basically, when European honeybees were introduced to Asia, the varroa mite jumped across from Asian bees to the European ones, and they had very little natural resistance to it. And the varroa mites can actually bring even more diseases to the honeybees. The biggest impact it has is it vectors viral diseases from bee to bee. Things like deformed wing virus are now can be much more damaging to the honeybee hive because they're being transmitted more efficiently. You see, communal living, whilst essential to the bee's survival, 
also makes them incredibly vulnerable to infections. So this drastic reduction in insects is in the background. And meanwhile, we've got a skyrocketing almond industry. In the past 20 years, almond production has tripled. Today, the U.S. produces 2.28 billion pounds annually. In large part because many consumers have actually shifted away from dairy, and for a while, almond milk was the go-to replacement for cow milk. Can I also get an almond milk latte, please? Okay, great. Do you want to do almond coconut cream or almond milk? Uh, Almond coconut cream sounds good. Great. California now produces nearly 80% of the world's almonds, and pretty much all of that is in just a handful of counties. And without enough wild bees buzzing around doing the mating for an almond or citrus tree, the industry has to rely on honeybee hive rentals. The beehives sort of look like filing cabinets. They're wooden boxes all stacked on top of one another. And inside each box, there are a series of vertical slats that look like frames. Over time, the bees fill out these frames with honeycomb that's made of beeswax, and then they fill the comb with honey. There's an exit entry point for bees, so they fly out to go eat and then return to the hive to deposit more honey. Each hive contains a queen bee who lives for several years. She basically eats and lays eggs all day. Now, she's surrounded by between 10,000 to 80,000 drones and worker bees who each live for just a few weeks. A few years ago, you could rent a hive for the pollination season for around $35. Now, they're worth at least $100. And there are reports of some farmers paying up to $200 a hive. So you can see why they're so tempting for thieves. And with all this demand, you might think that beekeepers would just think, okay, we'll start raising more bees. But it's not that simple. As well as the problems of pesticides, varroa mite, habitat loss, honeybees also have another big problem that breeding more won't save them from. Bad diet. Just like with humans, we are what we eat. This is Noah Wilson-Rich. He's the co-founder of the Best Bees Company. They manage honeybee hives in urban areas. But really, Noah's a bee evangelist. Like, he gives TED Talks, he works with MIT and Harvard to extol and explore the wonders of bees. Bees are vegan, so they're only getting their protein from pollen and their carbohydrates from nectar. So historically, from a bee's eye view, when they're going out foraging every day, they're looking for a good, healthy diet that is diverse with their nutrients. So, you're a bee, you're hungry, you go out looking for those nice, colourful flowers. Ideally, you're after a rainbow bowl, worthy of Instagram. And the trouble now is really since World War II, when we started to industrialize our agricultural practices, we no longer have diverse farms that grow many different crops. Now we have a lot of monoculture farms that have one crop. So thinking about almonds, where it's about three counties in California, that's where the majority of almonds come from, and there's really nothing else growing there. That is a lot of white blossom. They're eating one thing. And it's like if you or I ate pizza every day, it might be tasty at first. The leftovers could be good, hot or cold. But then we're not going to feel so well if we're doing it for about a month. And this means bees are dying. At unprecedented, alarming rates. In California, an estimated 300 million is spent each year on renting over 2 million hives, or about 40 trillion honeybees for these pollination gigs. And if you think that's crazy... Here's where it gets even crazier. 40% of those hives die every year. 
The beekeeper opens up the hive to find a dead queen bee surrounded by tens of thousands of dead worker bees and drones. In the US, bees are classified as livestock. Could you imagine four in 10 cattle dying from disease each year or 10 billion pigs? That almond cream latte, it suddenly has quite a bit of aftertaste, doesn't it? It's a pollination superhighway where over two or two and a half million beehives live on flatbed trucks on our nation's highways for most of the year. By renting out their hives to pollinate huge monocultures, beekeepers are, in some ways, sending them off to die. But at the same time, we can't really live without them. Migratory beekeepers are very important to our agricultural system. They care a lot about bees. That's their livelihood. And many of these organizations are multiple generations of the same family. So with dwindling numbers of bees and skyrocketing demand, will the black market of stolen bees just continue to rise? Stay tuned after the break. If there's one thing Kohler knows, it's innovative sink design. So that got me wondering, do my colleagues at America's Test Kitchen know how to fill in the blank? Hello. Hey, Chad, it's Bridget. Hey, I need you to finish the sentence for me, okay? Okay. Everything but the... Everything but the... Oh, man. Hmm. I don't know. Butter? The bread? Oh, kitchen. Kitchen sink. Everything but the kitchen sink. For everything, including the kitchen sink, there's Kohler. Because they know that in the kitchen, the sink is where clean begins. Take the Artifacts Touchless Kitchen Faucet. It has a precision sensor built right into the spout, so a simple wave of your hand turns the faucet on and off in 20 milliseconds. Kohler offers a range of kitchen and bath products that make cleaning easy. And clean is a good feeling. Learn more at Kohler's collection of clean products at kohler.com clean. When Miyoko Shinner became vegan, she made it her mission to improve the quality of vegan food. And vegans are really the, I think, the most ardent foodies. And we're always concocting new ways of doing old tricks. So when she set her sights on making vegan cheese, she applied the old tricks of traditional dairy cheese making. And if you take that same technology with a few tweaks and apply it to plant-based milks, you can make lovely, lovely cheeses out of it. Plant-based cheeses from Miyoko's Creamery are made by inoculating plant milks with dairy cultures and fermenting them, just like traditional cheesemaking. Miyoko's vegan cheeses are good for the planet and good for you. Learn more at miyokos.com. That's M-I-Y-O-K-O-S dot com. Our friends at OXO are celebrating their 30th anniversary this year by starting a partnership with 1% for the Planet giving 1% of sales back to environmental nonprofits. OXO's Karen Schnellwag tells us how OXO will be investing. We really wanted it to come from our heart, and we wanted it to come from our core of what we knew best and what we do best. First and foremost, people know us for home products in their kitchen, food, and that led us to identify our first bucket, sustainable food systems. We also have a robust cleaning line, and that led us to our second bucket, encouraging cleaner air, land, and water. And then our third bucket was inspired by our OxoTot line of baby and toddler products. In that third bucket is environmental empowerment, which is early education, educating kids to become even better environmental stewards. To learn more about OXO's partnership with 1% for the planet, visit OXO.com. That's O-X-O dot com. 
Hi, Proof listeners. I want to tell you about Nova Now, a new bi-weekly podcast from the PBS series Nova that's diving into the science behind the headlines. Join journalist and physician Alok Patel as he talks with the scientists, engineers, technologists, and mathematicians that are working to better understand our world. Now it's more critical than ever to distinguish fact from fiction and find science-based answers to the most pressing questions of our time. So listen to Nova Now today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Before the break, we learned why beehives are in demand in California's Central Valley. So I started out uh, as a pretty young man with a young family and was originally a teacher and just became a, a beekeeper. And 45 years later, we're doing this now. This is George Hansen. He lives just outside Portland, Oregon, and he runs a successful family business, which he's passing down to his sons. He's a very considered cultured guy. His website even has pictures of the art that he and his wife make, vivid paintings of the land around his enterprise, the Foothills Honey Company. I started out, the name of my business is the Foothills Honey Company. I thought I was a honey company, but it became pretty clear that we had to supplement that income. For George Hansen and so many other honey beekeepers, it became hard to make money from honey. Imports from outside the U.S. started flooding the market and lowering prices. And it was just about the same time that almonds started realizing they needed bees, and the cherry growers around here and the blueberry growers, and they were all coming to the realization that they couldn't depend on just whatever in order to come out with a crop that was uh, dependably good. And that is how George joined the ranks of other commercial beekeepers renting out hives. And now it's the lifeblood of his business. Even though we don't make a lot of honey anywhere near enough to support a business, we do have demand for our bees. And you just go and you try and make the best out of it. There is this faint breeze of wistfulness in George's voice that he can't just spend his days spinning honey. But at the same time, he's proud that his pollinating business is playing this vital role in getting food onto people's plates. And so I feel like, well, I'm doing an important job. George's bees are busy as <clears throat> bees. The pollination season starts in January when George moves his 7,000 beehives down to California for the almonds, which sounds like a lot, but he maintains that his is only a moderately sized business. And to get the hives from Oregon to California? We just hire trucks. They use about 20 trucks with a large flatbed. Each can fit around 400 hives. And then once we're down there, then the whole crew goes down and we actually live there in the area. Each year, 11 of George's crew and his two sons spend three weeks living in a motel in the Central Valley while they get the bees set up to work. They go back to Oregon for a couple of weeks before returning to California again in March for another three weeks of bee husbandry before they... Load them back up on the trucks and send them back home. And almost immediately we go into pairs Apples and cherries are blooming at the same time. Half the outfit goes there, and then the other half goes into high bush blueberries. Then there just are a succession of vegetable seeds and clover seeds. And then George brings the hives back to his farm for winter to build up their strength before they start all over again. But it doesn't always go to plan, as George has also been a victim of hive thefts. He had a few stolen last year. They were right on the road, on the county road, and 
you know, somebody came by and they threw him in the back of a pickup and took off. Which means he's now very protective of them. We try to be really careful and work with our growers to make sure that the placements are secure, either behind a gate or someplace where people go by on a regular basis. But no matter how careful he is trying to protect his hives from theft, he can't protect them from danger altogether. Here on the one hand, we're trying so hard to keep bees alive and healthy. But on the other hand, the corn growers and the wheat growers and the even the almond growers and stuff, are they're trying to make a, a huge profit if they possibly can. You know, they've changed the landscape in a really dramatic way. And if there was, you know, just some unused land over the hill that bees could go to, well, that would be one thing. But that's less and less and less. More and more of the landscape managed very, very intensely. And so this is having a huge effect on not just honeybees, but all bees. So George is stuck between a rock and a hard place. On the one hand, he needs business to remain strong and profitable. But on the other hand, he knows that farmers need to compromise efficiency in order to keep the bees alive. So George works with smaller scale businesses where he can develop relationships with farmers and have a louder voice advocating for changes that will help the bees. The larger the outfit is, the more difficult it is to maintain these relationships with the actual landowner. I found that the growers, the the actual landowner, they really do care. They care about the land. They care about our bees. Sometimes the further you get away from the actual owner of the property, you know, the less anybody's paying attention anymore. The fact of the matter is, the bigger industrial farms have a lot of power. They set the norms and the competitive prices and control a lot of the market share. So unless the big farms get on board with improving bee health, hive deaths and thefts will continue. The almond story does kind of typify the extreme pressures that we put on honeybees and expect them to to deliver. This is insect expert Dave Golson again. So the poor bees, they're, they're, you know, transported thousands of miles on lorries and when they arrive they're expected to to fly out and pollinate these crops. These crops are still being treated with insecticides, even while the bees are feeding on them, which is astonishing and so stupid. So even if a big-scale almond farmer doesn't care about worker bees dying for ethical or environmental reasons, they will care about it for one reason. Money. Almost every almond farmer in the Central Valley is a member of the Almond Board of California. And each member has to pay three cents for every pound of almonds they produce. This money funds a research program that, among other things, looks at pollinators and bee health. I'm Josette Lewis. I'm the chief scientific officer for the Almond Board of California. Josette is refreshingly honest about the balance between the needs of commercial honeybees, wild insects, and farmers, even when it comes to pesticide use. I think this is an example, uh, frankly, where we take our responsibility very seriously. And we have not shied away from funding research that might show that we need to change the way we grow almonds. The Almond Board's own research from 2014 found that certain insecticides have a negative impact on honeybees. And so we've translated that into messages to growers that, in fact, you don't need those insecticides at the time leading up to when the honeybee hives show up in almond orchards. So the Almond Board told the farmers only to spray pesticides after the honeybees had left for the season. 
And we've already seen nearly a 70% reduction in use of insecticides since that research and the messages to growers. Another of the messages the Almond Board is getting out to farmers is that their groves shouldn't necessarily look impeccably neat. They should allow something called cover crops. That's sort of what a uh, average person might think of as wildflowers in the orchard in the early spring, what a farmer might think of as weeds that flower in the early spring. Which adds variety to a bee's diet, which is great. But... I don't think cover crops alone is the solution. Josette says adding cover crops alone won't fix everything. They've also got to take on varroa mites. And the solution is cold. The use of cold storage putting beehives into a refrigerated uh, warehouse in the early spring after they come out of almonds when they tend to be very vigorous and have really strong hives, kind of slows the bees down a little bit. They don't lay eggs uh, when they're at colder temperatures and the, the varroa mite feeds on that brood. So by breaking that cycle for just a brief period of time, you can actually really knock down the varroa mite levels in the hive so putting bees in the fridge over winter seems to help with varroa mite, but it also goes further. The almond board is even questioning whether almond growers need to use honeybees at all. Breeders have figured out how to get over this natural barrier that almond trees have of not marrying their cousin. So Regions like Spain and Israel and Australia, as well as here in California, are developing new almond varieties through traditional breeding, these are not GMOs, to get over this genetic hurdle so that almonds can self-pollinate. But self-pollinating almond varieties is a trend throughout the world. So one way to protect honeybees might be to pretty much write them out of the pollination story, which means all of those beekeepers, like George, who switched from making honey to going into hive rentals, may suddenly find that they're not in demand that much anymore. But for right now, the almond groves need bees for pollination. And as long as wild bee populations keep dying out, almond farmers will need to rent honeybees. And as long as those bees are mostly feeding on monoculture, they'll continue to die at alarming rates. And this precariousness will continue to fuel high-dollar beehive thefts in the Valley of California under the shield of darkness, and the black market will continue to thrive. And as for the beekeepers and the farmers, well, the only real solution for them is to hire men like Rocky Pipkin, PI, to protect the valuable little workers on their farms. That's right. (laughs) Go ahead and spin around. Yep. I'll get the other side. I won't make it too tight for... There you go. Cool. That's it. So don't <laughs> laugh at me like that. This is the sound of two very big men attempting to drape several pounds of bulletproof vest over me. Kind of imagine bridesmaids helping a bride into her wedding dress, except the bridesmaids are carrying loaded weapons. That's a that's a shotgun, right? Yeah, it's a- Just hiding behind the door. Yep, and plenty of extra shells in case we get caught in here. <laughs> When I was recording the Nutjob series for Audible, I went out into the field with the Rocky Pipkin Detective Agency. And they are not messing around. The bulletproof vest and the guns are a serious operation. They're out to catch a thief. And if they find them, they'll chase him down. 
you get into that mode and, and you know, sometimes you're, you're, you're like a shark smelling blood in the water. So I put on my bulletproof vest and I follow them into the fields. And we typically go out, go to do our surveillance when the sun goes down and we'll be out there till the sun comes up the next day. And it goes beyond traditional surveillance. Rocky and his team use some pretty up-to-date technology to watch over the fields. The cameras that we have on that drone is an infrared, and it also, also has a FLIR heat-recognizing camera on it. In the middle of the night, we, we can see a jackrabbit in a field. We can see a beehive. Even though the bees may be, you know, resting and not moving much, they're still generating heat. Can we take a moment to acknowledge just how crazy it is that Rocky Pipkin PI is doing armed patrolling of orchards and groves using drone heat surveillance to monitor beehives? If we are late getting to the theft of some hives, we can launch the drone and and it can fly for 90 minutes. And with that heat identifying FLIR uh, device on, on the camera, if, if somebody's going down the road with, with a, a truckload full of hives, we, we can spot them. And, and then the drone will give us the exact GPS coordinates of where that vehicle is and where it's traveling and what speed it's going. If we wanted to, we could probably swoop down and, and read the plate on the vehicle. And after the drone has swooped in, Rocky and his detectives will swoop in and do a citizen's arrest. It's hard to imagine that the best way to contend with the bee problem in Central Valley is heat-detecting drones, big men, and big guns. But I think what I realised reporting this story is that even though the problem is small, beehive theft, the causes are huge. Feeding the world in an industrial age is wildly complicated. And don't get me wrong, it is encouraging to see how people are trying to make things a bit better for the bees, but it's going to take time. And until then, beekeepers will face this ethical conundrum and we'll just keep eating our almonds. This episode was produced by Emma Weatherall. Thanks to reporter Mark Fennell. You can listen to Mark's series Nut Jobs on Audible. Special thanks to something else. If you want to learn more about this story, you can visit our website. That's americastestkitchen.com slash proof. Go check it out. And if you like proof, then be sure to subscribe wherever you listen so you'll get new episodes as soon as they drop. And while you're there, why not leave us a rating or write us a review? It really helps other people find the show. Proof is hosted and produced by me, Bridget Lancaster. Our executive producer is Caitlin Kelleher. Sarah Joyner is our managing producer, associate producer Caroline Rickert. Scoring, sound design, and mixing by Matt Boynton of Ultraviolet Audio. Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds composed our theme music. Additional music by Kyle Forrester and Jordan Pearson. Post-production supervisor is Hen Margolis. Our production manager is Diane Knox. Fact-checking by Kaya Williams. Jack Bishop is Chief Worker Bee and Chief Creative Officer of America's Test Kitchen. David Nussbaum is our CEO. Thanks again to our sponsors, Kohler, OXO, Miyoko's Creamery, and The Town Doc. Proof is a production of America's Test Kitchen. Hi, Proof listeners. I'm El Simone Scott, and I'm here to tell you about my new podcast from America's Test Kitchen. It's called The Walk-In, as in the walk-in refrigerator in a restaurant. And if you've ever worked in a restaurant, then like me, you've probably had some of your best cries in the walk-in. It's a safe space 
a place to catch your breath or let it all out. And that's exactly what we'll do on my show. We'll hold space for the food world to get real about the tough stuff in this industry. The show features raw, unfiltered conversations with chefs, writers, and visionaries changing the food game. Like my conversation with Mashama Bailey about what it's like to run a fine dining restaurant in a building that used to be a segregated bus station. Or my conversation with Omar Tate about how he expresses the Black experience on a plate. I hope you'll check it out. Subscribe to The Walk-In today anywhere you get your podcasts.